welcome to episode three of Antidotes. Last week was dark, to say the least. This week is not. We talked about EMS shit for the last two weeks. And now we're going to talk about some nursing stuff. So I am here with my, my cat, Frank, who is uh, 15 years old and who normally ignores me, is currently sitting almost on the laptop because he hears someone else's voice and he wants he, attention. Uh, he thinks he's going to be on the podcast. He does. Mr. Hyper or Hypothyroid Cat. Uh, he is a hyperthyroid cat. With Yeah, he's got heart failure and liver disease and kidney disease and like a stage four heart murmur and, you know, just, just about everything. But he's still kicking, so. Did you take him to a cat cardiologist? My aunt just did that. I did not. I was going to, but it turns out kitty echoes are like $500. So, you know. That's still a better deal than um, human echoes. I would take a unloved relative to a cat cardiologist and just, you know, <laughs> take the discount. Hey, if they're any good, I mean, yes. Well, I'm here with my, my 15-year-old disease-ridden flabby tabby. <laughs> Oh, I hope no one calls me that. <laughs> well, he's a tabby cat, so he's a flabby tabby. He's red-haired, too, and I'm pretty blonde, so... Right. Oh, I think I'm looking at my future when I'm looking into Frank. <laughs> Listen, Frank has, like, the best life ever. This cat, he gets meds twice a day. I buy him, like, this super special gourmet food that's, like, $2 a freaking can. James does not buy me $2 a can food, yes, well, let me tell you. Yeah. For the amount of food this cat eats, like that's like eating like $20 meals twice a day. <laughs> what is James saying? He's living it up. I always said that if I believed in reincarnation, I would want to come back <laughs> as Lowell, but living with you. <laughs> I remember. Not living with me. All right. So this is going to be episode three, where we talk about nurse shit. Nurse shit. Nurse shit. And not EMS shit like previously that those are the medical terms for these things this week we have on angela hi and again this is one of my friends this is a podcast where i convince the world that i have friends (laughs) because every week we talk to people that i know (laughs) i mean right we we, you just sucker us and we feel obligated to to come on your show you know well jokes on me it's going to be a rotation of three people (laughs) every single time because that's all i know no Oh my God, that'd be terrible. That'd be an awful podcast. So Angela and I met in the Army Reserves. That's a big emphasis on the Reserves. James, who was in Real Army, is nodding and stamping his feet that I need to emphasize the Reserves part of it. You know, can I just, in defense of the Army Reserves, so I I couldn't quote you exact statistics, but like something like 70% of the Army's medical corps is in the Reserves. Because we have people that work as nurses and doctors and surgeons and, you know, all the other support services that we never mention enough, like uh, respiratory therapy, PPOT. <laughs> oh, that I, I can't think of off the top of my head. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the other ones, like, listen, you guys, you're out there, the OR techs and the CNAs and the, you know, all the other forgotten support services that just don't get recognized enough. Um, but so... They work in the best hospitals in the country, especially, you know, up where I live. And then on the weekends, they put on uniforms and we play army. So James can roll his eyes all he wants and talk talk all the shit he wants. But Army Reserve's medical command is no joke. So 
yeah, this is this is very true. You know, active duty medical soldiers, we're not shitting on them, but when they're not deployed or treating soldiers and their families who are generally pretty healthy, us shitty reservists and National Guardsmen that people like to make fun of, we're going into the city hospitals where we work normally and treating gunshot wounds and car accidents and the 80-year-old with diabetes and heart failure. and It's kind of the best of both worlds. You get a lot of civilian experience. Uh, and, you know, civilian hospitals are fantastic. Yeah, and so... Not to sound too uh, much like recruiters, but of course not. that's how we met. But when you are two women in the military, especially two NCOs, you either become very quick friends or you <laughs> cannot stand each other right? because you've been a lot of time together. You go, all right, you also have a uterus <laughs> and you have boobs and you have stripes on those boobs. We are going to get room together. We are going to be assigned to do everything together and police up all the other females, especially the lower enlisted, junior enlisted. So please don't suck. Please don't be bitchy. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were kind of made to be friends by force. I think, you know, we were just kind of forced into our friendship, but it worked out. I think <laughs> it did work out. I would say many years later. <laughs> and one of the moments that really highlighted that was we were on a mission and I say mission we were on our annual training which is you know summer camp for the reserves we were in the field it was very rugged very tough and is this when I earned that nickname yes so that was the story I was going to go with and but let me first describe our field experience which is of course the toughest of the tough we had an inflatable pool it was great yeah it was awesome uh it was terrible. The air conditioning units only worked part of the time. Right. We really roughed it, you know. We did. We did. Uh, the showers, we had showers, but they were cold. They were in so a tent, was, too. I mean. They were. They were. So it's not like we were outside showering with, you know, trash bags. Um, <laughs> it was It was so, it was so terrible. It was so hard. It was, it was totally like the army version of glamping. Glamping, yeah. Um, and I had this mosquito net over my cot that um, everyone called the, the pretty, pretty princess bed because it was just this white mosquito netting. <laughs> That totally looked like something out of a um, young girl's bedroom. So obviously this is not the field, but th this is what they call like, it. Didn't you also have like an inflatable air mattress? Oh, I bought a pool floaty at the dollar store. Yeah. That, like a long one that I slept on to make it more comfortable. <laughs> Look, I'm blonde and not stupid. It was very, very comfortable. Anyways, so you were the NCO in charge of the section of the hospital that we were in for these war games. And of course, only having cold showers and terrible food and, you know, everyone's smelling. Everyone was kind of on edge and being grumpy. And some of the junior enlisted were being like, oh, she's got a bad attitude. And they didn't like being told what to do because, you know, At millennials. No, I'm just kidding. I think part <laughs> of the issue was that I also have a really bad case of resting bitch face. So that's what they said yeah. about you. Which, they which go, is true. Oh. It's true. Uh, so they said Staff Sergeant Angela has resting bitch face. And I said, I was there and I was like, actually, that's Sergeant resting bitch right. face to you guys. <laughs> and so then I told you that and that has become the joke that you are Sergeant resting bitch face. If you're going to 
you have to be respectful. Right, right. If you're it. gonna give me a nickname, it's you know, make sure you get my rank right. So my my nickname now is is Staff Sergeant Bitchface. And uh, you know, it's a title that I that I wear proudly. So yeah. There are much worse nicknames. For sure, for sure, absolutely. You know, as long as you're gonna be respectful about it. You know? So <laughs> that was a that was a terrible, not fun well, we think it was pointless mission. But you actually went on a really cool one a few years ago to a totally different continent, right. not the middle of the country. And it was a humanitarian mission. So tell me about that. Yeah. So this is actually, so the uh, United States Army actually does a lot of humanitarian missions. And so that was actually my second one. And I went to a, uh, a country in Africa. So this country that we went to uh, is uh, predominantly Muslim and polygamy is very common there. And, you know, there are cultural norms that we, that I kind of struggled with, but that's, you know, their culture, which is fine. It was just not something that I think I was prepared for as much. Um, so over there in this particular country, uh, women are valued as child bearers. And so your worth is kind of um, determined by how many children you have and how many children you can have. So as a woman that doesn't have children, you're kind of seen as less than. And this is something that, you know, we were told that I'm not, I'm not, I didn't just make this up. I, uh, this is not my opinion. This is what, you know, we were kind of told as part of our cultural briefing and what we were kind of uh, told by staff at the hospital is they explained why certain things were being done. Going into a culture like that is difficult for anyone, but also very difficult for females that are like you and I, very right. educated, you know, you're in nurse practitioner school now you're a nurse you also have a bachelor's you know you were like me you have two bachelor's degrees went back to get a master's we are females that were ncos in the military we're a very educated very independent you know we don't take shit from no man kind (laughs) of opinion and culture that we grew up in it's it's hard to walk into another culture like that and still be respectful but that's definitely something yeah it's it's hard to you know we were invited into this country uh, we were working with their military in a military hospital. We were not there to teach them or anything. That's you know, it was it was kind of more. We were just out. We guess we were guests. You were yeah, guests. we were there to help out, and we were there to kind of like establish rapport, um, among other things. So uh, you know, just because you disagree with someone else's culture doesn't mean that you know that doesn't give you the right to be disrespectful or. Yeah, of course. So tell me about the hospital. What was what were their facilities like? You had mentioned to me kind of before we were recording that this was their best hospital, the top of the line equipment. Yeah, so, for this um, you know, I think here, you know, after, after working so many years in hospitals here, I, I was kind of taken aback by the facilities they had. One might say that they were dirty and equipment was often rusty and broken. The power went out a lot. Like there was a couple of times we were in the OR where the power went out and we lost all the overhead lighting. So people would just pull their cell phones out and turn the flashlight app on their phones on and we would they would continue the surgery by the light of cell phones. Oh my god. I I like Yeah. One HIPAA violation. I mean not that HIPAA is a thing outside the United States. I mean obviously privacy is but right. HIPAA is a US law. But not sterile? Nope. Nope. And I'm thinking I'm like, oh my god, what if one of these cell phones gets dropped into a patient? Um because I don't know if you know anything about and I'm sure you know this, but um, cell phones are really dirty. <laughs> They're very dirty. I don't think OtterBox makes like a surgical. I 
case. I don't know that Autobots makes a sterile <laughs> case, but you know, if they're listening to this, like maybe that might be something they could consider in the future for third world nations yeah, during you know, for wherever during surgery. Yeah, you just you know, in case you need to light up your OR <laughs> with your cell phone. Um, so yeah, uh, a lot of the equipment was broken, dirty. You know, they they did not have the medications that we would expect here, and you know, just the way that they deliver care is much different. It's it's a cash for service industry. So if you don't have cash, you don't get health services. So I remember uh, watching uh, a nurse. You know, this patient needed blood work, so the nurse waited, and the patient you know went into their purse, got out cash, handed the cash to the nurse. The nurse walked across the hall to the lab, purchased phlebotomy supplies and uh, a tube walked back across the hall, uh, drew the patient's blood and then walked back and paid for the blood test. Um, And that was, you know, the patient was admitted. And so if you don't have cash, you're not getting that blood test just the way it is. I, I can't even imagine. And, you know, as a primary care provider now, we try and we get harped on all the time for excessive costs. You know, we don't want to order testing that we don't need Patients always like, well, can you order this test and that test? And they want excessive things. And we try and explain, no, we don't really need that. But this country, you really do not mm. get tests. You do not. You probably are not getting a lot of tests you do need. Yeah. I mean, if, well, if you have the money for it, you know, then you can get whatever you want. So as a result of this, you know, cash for services system, a lot of times we would have patients that had gone without medical care for an excessively long amount of time. Like they probably should have had surgery to correct these, you know, certain issues. Uh, 20 or 30 years before they came in the door. Oh, God. So we would see things that, you know, just kind of, you know, here they would just blow your mind because you, you, you would just like, that. Why, how did that get so bad? And so going back to the, you know, women as, you know, our, our value being and our ability to bear children, we had a patient right. that came in and uh, she had pretty severe uterine fibroids and uh, she hadn't had them corrected because she didn't have the money. And so our surgeon looking at this patient was like, you know, what? like this needs to go. This whole uterus needs to go. It's it's a mess. I just want to pause you. So for anyone that doesn't know, uterine fibroids are benign. They are non-cancerous, They but they can get very, very large and they can be very painful. They can cause a lot of bleeding. They can cause hormonal changes. I actually had a patient not too long ago with one that was like 12 centimeters by 11 centimeters by I think nine centimeters. And that was the largest one. There's multiple of them. They can, and that was in the U S I mean, they can get very, very large. So I can only imagine unchecked uterine fibroids. Right. So I did not see what it looked like before. I did see the uterus after when they were getting ready to put it back into her body. So, uh, it, it looked like, you know, the stitches on a softball. It was like that, but the whole thing was like that. So Wait, explain the procedure. They they took the uterus out while she's sedated, removed the fibroids, and then put it back? Or this was a procedure that was done years prior? No, so while we were there, um, they, they I don't know if she was under local or like a spinal uh, anesthesia, but I remember she, they, you know, kind of similar to a C-section. Uh, they make a, an incision. They remove the uterus from the body, from the abdominal cavity or pelvic. So they, <laughs> they make an incision. They remove uh, the uterus from the body. Uh, they remove the the fibroids and then you know sutured uh, the uterus back up. And uh, our surgeon, who I was working with, a U.S. surgeon, was like, "I I don't like this at all. I don't feel like this is good medical care. If she ever has uh, a pregnancy, I don't know that this uterus is going to hold. I'm really concerned about the risk of uterine rupture, and, and I I think she just needs a hysterectomy." But this patient was in her 40s and didn't have any children. 
and wasn't married. And so if she, right. So if she were to have a hysterectomy, that would basically limit her marriage potential and really her potential in life, you know? So she was not willing to have a hysterectomy. You have to also think about, you know, so she has this uterus, had surgery, and fibroids can be either inside the uterus, they can be in the walls of the uterus, they can they can be in the membranes, they can be kind of in different places. So who knows where they are and, and the stability of the uterus. She's not going to probably have a very well-monitored pregnancy. She's already in her 40s. That's a high-risk pregnancy to begin with. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The risk of, you know, complications and maternal and fetal demise from that is just so, so, so high. Um, it's just really tragic. Right. Uh, and to me, I think that kind of struck me because, you know, it, and obviously this was not my opinion because I, I don't really have the education or experience to kind of speak to, speak to that level of like obstetric care. But the surgeons that I was working with um, were very concerned about that, uh, that surgery. And it kind of struck me that, you know, this patient and the doctors there were willing to forego kind of standard care in favor of preserving her fertility because fertility would, in, you know, preserving her, you know, uh, value as a woman. And that was her decision as well. She was not forced to do that. No, not at all. But yeah, it, it was just kind of mind blowing to me as, um, yeah. So, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, another incident, which I've told you, Christine, I've told you this, I think a few times because it was, uh, <laughs> this one was, was kind of traumatic. Yes. The other incident, which is, <laughs> I think for a lot of us that were involved in this. So we had a patient who, I, I don't know the backstory. I don't really know what, you know, why she was there. I do know that she came in for a hysterectomy. So removal of the uterus and ovaries. Yes. Like, I don't know why she was getting it, but if she was getting it, I, based on what I had seen previously, I'm going to go ahead and assume that she must've really, really, really needed it. So she, you know, here in the U S we do most procedures like that uh, under general anesthesia. So, you know, the patient is completely put to sleep. Um, They're paralyzed. Somebody um, intubates them and takes control of their airway. Put the tube down their throat. It's intubated. Puts a tube down their throat, right. Um, and that patient is out cold and they don't remember anything. I'm sure if anybody that's listening has had surgery, you've probably had it at a general anesthesia. However. Yeah. So like I said, cash for services. So for whatever reason, they decided to do an epidural. And so they, she was wide awake. Explain Explain real quick what an epidural is. Yeah, so um, I, I'm sure if you've ever seen any of the million shows where women have uh, babies or you know deliver by or, you know deliver by C-section, they put a needle into the spine and administer medication to numb the patient from that point down. Right, because you don't want a woman that's having that's giving birth to be under general anesthesia. You want her to be awake and being able to push, not for a C-section, but for certain things you want her to be able to feel and then maybe begin nursing or do interacting with the baby. She shouldn't be under general anesthesia. And But you were there as a medic because you, this was before you became a nurse. Correct. Yes. This is before I was, I went to nursing school. So I was there as a medic. Um, so a lot of what I did was honestly just watching. And because, you know, I was not a nurse yet, a lot of the people I worked with took it upon themselves to explain things to me, which was fantastic. It was a great learning opportunity for me. Uh, so as a result, I got to watch a lot of stuff and, and learn a lot of stuff. And a lot of things were explained to me, which I thought was just, a, you know, a great way to absorb everything that was going on around me. 
So this patient, she had an epidural and uh, they were going to perform a hysterectomy. Um, and everything was going fine initially. Uh, they made an incision under her belly button and opened her up and they started to remove her organ. And that's kind of where things got a little hairy. She started screaming in pain. That's never a good sign in surgery. No, no, it is not. Uh, she started screaming in pain because she could feel what was going on. And I imagine that uh, having an organ removed is probably a pretty painful uh, procedure. So I would think any organ being removed is no thank you hard pass yeah yeah I probably want to feel that yeah hard pass on that one so yeah our uh CRNA which is a a nurse anesthetist they are so badass by the way oh who they're just the coolest people by the way if there's any CRNAs out there they are just fantastic they are the anesthesia version of nurse practitioners but they they go through like they get their master's degree or higher and they do all the anesthesia and drugs and intubations and stuff. And it is, it's an insanely difficult schooling and they're, they're very, very yeah. cool. Anyways. Uh, highly educated, highly experienced professionals. So we had a CRNA who was working in conjunction with their anesthesiologist and our CRNA, who was a straight badass, is like, well, let's take care of this and moves immediately to go ahead and put this woman under. Hell yeah. Just knock me out. Right. At that point, knock her out. Like, oh, that sucked. Sorry about that. Let's just put you to sleep. All the drugs. Give me all the all drugs. drugs. You get all the drugs. Night night. And he was stopped by their CRNA. I mean, by their their anesthesiologist. Ugh. And they were like, no, no, we're not going to put her under. And he was like, what? Excuse me. Uh, and so their their anesthesiologist uh, just put an oxygen mask on her face. Oh, honey, no. Yeah, I don't, I mean, uh, my understanding is, and I, I could be wrong, um, but my understanding is oxygen typically does not have a ton <laughs> of analgesic properties. No, well, a lack of oxygen does. Right, yes. <laughs> a complete lack of oxygen. Right, so she just, you know, lay there and screamed through the oxygen mask, and that was, like, horrifying for me. It was horrifying for really all of us that were involved in this. And I couldn't help but think it was because she was getting the hysterectomy, honestly. Were there any female providers of the host nation there? No. No, there were not. I think there were some some of the OR techs were, uh, but none of the surgeons were. And I couldn't help but feel like our our anesthesiologist disapproved of her surgery, of her having her. The host nation anesthesiologist. I couldn't help but feel that the host nation anesthesiologist disapproved and wanted her to suffer. And so that was absolutely horrifying. Yeah, that's a... Right. Yeah. You know, oh, you're, you 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 want to get your uterus removed? Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? You go ahead and suck it up. How old approximately? I, you know what? I can't remember, to be honest. I don't think she was that old. Childbearing age still, maybe? I, she was probably still within childbearing age, you know, the, the childbearing age. I don't think she was older than... She was probably mid-30s to early 40s-ish. But, you know, I believe she'd already had a number of children. Not that there is any excuse ever for being treated that way. No, there's absolutely not. This is the kind of shit that would never fly here. I hope. I really hope this would never fly here. But you know what? There's nothing I we can do. There was really nothing that we could do about it. And I think that was so frustrating because we had the drugs. They were already laid out. Like we could have just put her out and, and you know, resolved the issue. But what are you going to do? Start an international incident over this I mean, uh, you can't yeah it's a tough call it's it's you know you have to be respectful of the host nation and their policies and and their uh, healthcare professionals but at the same time it, it goes against everything that you have in you 
uh, as a not just a healthcare provider, but as a human being, you know, and especially as a woman to to watch that. It was pretty tough. So, yeah, I mean, we always say do no harm. And and that is very much harm, that, physical and psychological. Yeah, that incident felt really harmful. And so our CRNA, who is a straight badass, honestly, like, like so stoic, never got flustered. Yeah, I know this guy. He's so chill. Yes, <laughs> he is. He's and he's such a professional and he's just fantastic. And, you know, I've never seen him mad. I have never seen him upset until this moment. And I've never seen him upset since. And he put down his tools uh, and he walked out of the OR and he never came back. So, I mean, he didn't just abandon the OR. There wasn't an, an anesthesiologist in there who was running the show. Poorly, but yeah. But it was still his show. So <laughs> that was... Uh, I think it, at that point, you can't help the situation and you can't make it better. So he just didn't want to be a part of it anymore, which I found totally understandable. Yeah. Right. And disagreeing with the team, you know, you're not going to win in that situation. Any disagreements would just prolong the time that that woman is suffering, prolong the time that she's open and and, the incision is open. It would just make things worse. Right. And conflict between the providers would not have helped. You know, a big part of patient care is, you know, uh, reassuring them and, and treating you know, anxiety and stuff. And so conflict between those two providers would have definitely, I think, probably further upset the patient and it would have helped her. So I think he probably made a good call in just walking out. Yeah. And you, and you don't want to watch no, that. No, not at all. Not at all. And that's for your own mental health. Right. And so me, I'm just standing here and I'm, you know, just this little medic. I don't know what's going on and I'm horrified. <laughs> um, and, you know, later they were like, by the way, that <laughs> stuff does not happen in the U.S. <laughs> you know, Everyone here would lose their jobs if that happened here in the U.S. And uh, oh God, you uh, hope so. Uh, yes, yeah. So that made me feel better. <laughs> it was quite an experience. But you know what? Moments like that, and you get glimmers of terrible things like that in the U.S. too. Not not nearly as egregious as that, but I hope not. I mean, of course, there's always bad things that are anomalies that do happen. But you when you see terrible things happen in medicine, it really solidifies your ethics as a provider and who you want to be as a caregiver. So whenever you see someone having a little bit of suffering or you see another clinician that's kind of going out of control a little bit, you remember these egregious moments. And I think you as a nurse and then as a future nurse practitioner, you're going to be like, oh, fuck no, and put your foot down whenever it gets even remotely close to something right. like this again. So there are there's some silver lining in that right. terribly dark cloud. And you know what they're like, this, this obviously happened in another country, but that's not to say that women and women of color, in, like in particular, do not suffer here. discrimination at the hands of providers here in the U.S. So Yeah, we have... Our uh, maternal death rate is shameful, especially for women of color. They have a disproportionately high fatality rate here in the U.S., and we have the highest maternal death rate of any developed nation, and it is significantly higher for women of color, and there is not enough being done to combat it, and it's healthy women, it's educated women of color, it's it's a problem. Right. And, it's, it, and there's not even enough being done to recognize it. I mean, look at Serena Williams just had a baby and almost died because her providers, she had a PE, she had a history of PEs and she kept pulmonary embolism. Huh? Pulmonary embolism. Yeah. So she kept telling them I'm having a PE. Uh, this is a 
you know, uh, a woman of color who's very famous, best athlete in the world, and with a history of PEs. And she kept telling them, something is wrong, something is wrong, I think I'm having a PE. And they didn't listen to her, and she almost died in childbirth. So there's not being enough done to address it, and there's not even being enough done to talk about it. You know, there's, there's not even enough effort being made to, to discuss this and recognize that it's a real issue. So that's just something, you know, to think about as you move forward in your career. Like, yes, this was a horrendous example of discrimination against a woman uh, because of her choice, the choices she's making. But remember that it doesn't have to be that horrendous or that egregious to still be an issue. You know, there, there are little things that we do, providers, that we don't even realize that we do, probably, that discriminate against people, you know, because of a number of different reasons, because of their color, because of their gender, because of their uh, personal choices, because of their religion. And it's just something to be aware of. Yeah, I think every time, you know, you walk in to see a patient, you kind of have a little bit of a prejudgment about them, whether you want to or not. And you learn through your career how wrong you are. And I'm probably going to do a whole episode on times when I judged the shit out of a patient and I was so horribly wrong and I learned a lot of lessons because I could do a whole episode on it. And I hate myself in that moment, but I absolutely love those teaching mm-hmm. moments for myself because I've grown so much from them. And we need to be more, you know, open right. to those those teaching moments as a as a profession. Right. Look, doctors are not just old white men anymore. There are so many more providers. There's PAs, there's NPs, there's midwives, there's there's a lot of other people in this industry and they're women, they're women of color, they're they're gay men, they're they're everybody. We need to have healthcare that is representative of the populations that we are treating. Right. You know, and it's it, it's something to be aware of, you know, something to think about when you're treating a patient like, do I have biases and you know, how do I let them how do I prevent them from affecting my judgment and my treatment plan. And it's also important to keep in the back of your mind if you are in the United States or a developed country and you're treating someone that's an immigrant, maybe that woman that you saw in that OR has she's come here and she doesn't trust you as a provider because that's the experience she had back. Absolutely. Home. Absolutely. So we have to be very culturally appropriate. I know a lot of times people go, "Oh, I don't like this PC bullshit." Well, no, in medicine, we need to be very politically correct and, and not just politically correct, culturally sensitive, because you never know who is coming from where, what kind of history they have, and what kind of interactions they've had with any healthcare right. system prior to their um, stepping into your, your realm. Right. Absolutely. That was a great story. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing well, of it. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's just important to remember, like, just, you know, hopefully nobody has a story that bad from here in the US, but things like that do still happen. And, you know, I was talking about how depressing last week was. And um, I was hoping that this would be a little bit lighter, but also depressing. Sorry. Well, (laughs) maybe not as depressing. (laughs) I don't know. I guess it depends. (laughs) The first week started out real strong with the comedy. Oh, speaking of comedy, speaking of comedy. So you told your your snake story. And I love your snake story. And every time uh, Christine and I go out together with a group of people, or even if we're not drinking, I, I will make her do this sober. I will make her tell them the snake story. And I was like, hey, remember the time that you were working and that woman in the swamp threw a snake at you? Can you like just tell us how that, you know, 
The woman with the snake. Could you just tell that for us, please? It's my party trick. Yes, it is your party trick. And it always makes us laugh. But you actually had another incident with some snakes. Yes. So I told the snake story, which is the flying snake story, like a million times. And then very recently, I was telling you, actually at a funeral. Yes, you did. You told this. <laughs> because why not, right? Right. About a fire that we had been to. So whenever there's a fire, the ambulances are there and you just kind of hang outside and hopefully you don't, you're not needed. But this one was for a guy that was a reptile breeder. His his building or house caught on fire. <laughs> and so uh, the whole house was basically, you know, ruined. The whole house kind of burned down, but not completely burned down. So at the end of every fire, when everything is knocked down, they call it, you know, the fire's out, they do my favorite part which is called overhauling where they take everything that is inside and it all goes outside so it all just goes out through the windows so they the couches and chairs and everything just gets thrown out the windows why do they do that so they're looking for like hidden fire they want to make sure that you know the couch is in on fire and it's going to rekindle and the whole place is going to go up again you know they make they want to make sure that they got the whole thing the whole it's really out it takes a little while so they throw everything out and I don't know what they're doing in there. Maybe they're having a party. But it looks fun. <laughs> I just sit outside. <laughs> they do all the work. It looks exhausting. So this fire was at this guy that had a lot of reptiles. I don't know if he was a breeder. He was just one of those collectors. I don't know. But all of a sudden, all of these burned snakes <laughs> start flying out the second story windows. And me, who had been at this goddamn fire for hours on end, was like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, now I'm paying attention. Because, of course, you're bored out of your mind. I mean, as, as EMS, you're not really doing anything. You're just standing around and you smell like smoke. And it's like, you know, you don't you want us to be bored at these things, right? If we're If we're entertained, we're working. And that's bad for firefighters and bad for people. So <laughs> all of a sudden, all of these snakes get thrown out these windows and they're dead. I mean, which is, I would say tragic if it was any other animal, but obviously my feelings on the snakes are pretty clear at this point. Right. And it was just raining burnt snakes from this house. And I was just like, what <laughs> the fuck is happening? It was like your ninth, your ninth circle of hell, like just f like charred flaming snakes raining down on you out of the second story window. Well, thankfully I was across the right. street and they weren't coming at me and they were dead. They weren't like flaming <laughs> and alive and slithering towards me and like coming right down on top of me because that would have been just That probably awful. would not have been a good day. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants dead animals. Don't sue me, PETA. But ugh, yeah, it was just like, what? What the fuck? Why can't I? This was after the snake story had happened. Right. This so I was like, I can't, I can't get away from this shit. This is like some nightmare fuel. Yeah. Yeah. And, but like, I don't know what, what they would do. Like you can't go into a house and be like, oh, look at all these snakes. And like, you're not going to rescue them like a bunch of puppies because what if they're venomous? Well, yeah, that was my first thought. I was like, well, you can't just discriminate against the snakes because they're snakes. But, you know, puppies aren't typically venomous to my knowledge unless there's, you know, some new breed out there. So so I guess that's, I guess that's pretty understandable. Well, I feel like that's a hazmat situation. If there's like a <laughs> bunch of snakes. No, I mean, I'm making a joke, but it's kind of serious. Like if... If there's like a snake breeder 
I feel like you'd have to notify the fire department if your place goes up and there's like these snakes trapped in these cages. Like they must have evacuation plans and all this kind of stuff. I imagine that it was their evacuation plans for like a legitimate snake breeder would be a little bit more in depth than like, you know, those little stickers that people have on their doors. Like, Hey, fire department, there's two cats and one dog (laughs) in here. Like, I don't think they just have like one of those Snickers stickers. That's like, there are four boa constrictors they're okay. You can get them if you can catch them. There's one rattlesnake. Fuck that guy. The iguana's cool. Bring him out. Like, I don't think that is on their door. It should be. Like, it should, well, I, yeah. I don't think in a fire you're going to, like, worry about the snakes. I think you let them burn. I, I mean, yeah. I, I probably would not go in to rescue some snakes. Puppies, totally. Cats, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Mammals, great. For sure. Mammals, absolutely. Anything that slithers is probably on its own. Well, geckos you like no chameleons i do i would probably rescue a chameleon because they're they're pretty cool they have cool little mitten feet and stuff so yeah I, but imagine if they were like loose in the house and then you went in there chameleons yeah for sure and it was on fire no not chameleons oh no a house full of chameleons that'd be kind of fun no a house full of like flaming snakes that were alive and you were like a firefighter and you had to go in there Ugh. i'm pretty sure i'm, have I'm pretty now. sure that's actually somebody's nightmare yeah mine <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god well thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast i really appreciate it thank you again for coming on and thank you everyone for listening for another week of antidotes if you like what you heard please give us a review on itunes leave a rating write us a little note on there it helps with our boosting and getting more people to to listen if you have a story of your own you can always send us an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com give us a follow on social media too our facebook is antidotes podcast which is the same as our instagram which is antidotes podcast and our twitter is antidotes pod you can follow us at any of those sites and hopefully we will be back next week with another story which again i do not know what it is so we will both be surprised have a nice week